0: But turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, children uh, may be dismissed to go with Miss Amy and Miss Marsha to our children's activity. Again, as you've just seen, this has all been one big testimony that we count ourselves blessed to have your children with us. Uh, We do not mind the sounds, the the squirms, the wiggles, Uh, they are a part of us, and this is where they belong. As they're making their way out to their little activity, uh, I want to say for those of you who are visiting with us, uh, that we are... uh, Wisely or not, I have taken on four sermons in the book of Revelation, and not just in the book of Revelation, but in like chapter 20 and 21, which are kind of some of the most uh, debated and studied and disagreed over chapters in the entire Bible. But I wanted to, to kind of do those. Uh, where this is number two in, in that series. I wanted to offer these four sermons in Revelation 20 and 21 as a postlude to the sermon series that I did earlier in the summer on uh, lamenting and the language of lament, and as we come uh, through one time and into the future, whatever that future might hold and look like for us, uh, we want to know that even as we weep for various reasons, many, many and varied reasons, that as believers, as Christians, we do not weep without hope. And even while darkness lingers, it doesn't have the last word. History is going somewhere. History is not just some random uh, string of events that is just sort of happening in sequence or all at once or whatever. Uh, But history has a a determinative point uh, to where it is going. Ultimately, it is going towards the glorification of God. That is the point of all of history. But it's tempting to think of our lives as so far detached from it. It's tempting to think of ourselves as sort of being the exceptions to history and the ones that sort of exist within history but don't really function as a part of history. And therefore, it's also tempting for us to think of ourselves as being detached uh, from the Bible and the events of the Bible. And it's tempting as believers to think that our lives aren't written on the pages of this book, because they are. You're in the Bible, one way or another. You are in there. And that's especially true as we come to the pages that are hard to understand and hard to interpret, and this sort of cryptic in this, this book, like Revelation, right? Um, but history is headed towards a great, a great apocalypse. You know, it's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. <laughs> Go back to my my childhood. There's this great apocalypse, and that's a good thing. When well, we have this image, we say the word apocalypse, and if zombies doesn't immediately pop into your brain, like you're, you haven't been living in the culture very well. Um, Asteroids, aliens, right? Plague, is it too soon? But the word apocalypse has kind of come to mean something in our culture and language that it doesn't mean. The word apocalypse is a Greek word. And it means revelation. Generally, we think it means the end of the world in some sort of violent means, right? But the actual title of the book of Revelation... Is Apocalypsis Jesus Christi, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and all of history is about Jesus. Everything that has ever happened is about Jesus, and, and the Book of Revelation is the revelation that is given to us by Jesus. He's the one doing the revealing to, the, to John as he writes these things down, and it's it's not only given by Jesus, but it's it's about Jesus. It's all about the King, King Jesus. And even as the ugly end of history comes about, we see the King in all His glory and authority. That He's been on the throne all along. And His justice is supreme. In fact, his reign is only just beginning. So history has an ugly ending, but eternity has a beautiful beginning. Let's look at that. History has an ugly ending, but eternity has a beautiful beginning. And there's two ways that this kind of plays itself out in the passage. First of all, it's the futility of rebellion against the king. And then second of all, the justice of the king's judgment. Let's read from Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven. And consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and hooks were opened. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, let's look at the futility of rebellion against the king. Like it, it, this seems kind of like a pessimistic sort of passage in scripture, but there's a lot that is hopeful that's going on in this passage. Uh, but it's wrapped up in this prophetic language and imagery, imagery of dragons and beasts and armies and king, and then there's Gog and Magog, and these are all they're all these sorts of allusions to Old Testament books like Daniel and Ezekiel and. It has this negative trajectory, right? Of war and battle. And the enemies of God's people seem to be on the march, and, and the odds seem to be overwhelming. It doesn't seem to be good for his church. And. and and verse 7, it says that when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Remember the, the dragon, what we looked at the last time, the dragon, Satan, the accuser, has been in prison for a thousand years in the bottomless pit so that the message of the gospel might spread beyond the borders of the nation of Israel and fill the whole earth to all the nations to those who once were outside of the covenant people of God we read just a minute ago about God saying the promises are for those who are far off, that's you and me, that's, that's the mess, where the message of the gospel is reaching, right, the covenant people of God are expanding in the scope of, of who they are So what is said about God's people would be true. That we would be a people from every tribe and tongue. Worshipping and glorifying God together as one for all eternity. But now here at the end of history, Satan is released for a little while. It says to deceive the nations once again. I want you to know that he is released. He does not escape. But he begins to build an army with which he assaults the people of God, their church. Gog and Magog, this sort of generic reference to the historic pagan opponents of God's people. And the dragon and his rebellion seem to be overwhelming the kingdom of God on earth, the church. As their their armies are vast and it is... It is said that it is geographically vast, right? That every nation from the four corners of the earth, it says, Satan is gathering his army to march against God's people. But their mission is that vast, and he is gathering them to battle. And then their numbers are vast, it says, like the sands of the seashore. Mm-hmm. Anytime the Bible wants to say, like, don't even bother trying to count these people. There's too many of them. It says something like, The sands of the seashore, right? Verse 9, it says that they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. I mean, there's there are specific scenes and specific movies that this just draws to my mind as this vast army gathers around God's people, and it almost like if I were shooting this, I would, I would put a camera on a drone and just fly it over what is going on so you get the scope and sense of what's going on, the cinematic action that armies are moving into place around the beleaguered stronghold of the heroes, right? It says the camp of the saints. The church is depicted as being nomadic here. That where they are is a camp. It is... It is is a nomadic people, that the church is not at home on the earth, and that, that we as God's people are still very much wanderers and exiles, right? Then it also says that it gathers around the beloved city, right? That there is a lasting identity, despite our status as wandering exiles in the world. But the point of all this is that there is cosmic rebellion that is being loosed against God's people. The rebellious enemies of God seem to be winning. It seems like the the forces of the world and the devil are going to succeed in wiping the church of Jesus from the face of the earth. But (laughs) the king and his justice are supreme. Nine and ten, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's a lot. That's, there's a lot that's going on in this whole passage that we're just not going to be able to say, right? There's a lot that could be said here about the judgment of God and the justness of it and, and eternal punishment and God's wrath and, and retributive justice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I, I just want to say this. For the enemies of God's beloved blood-bought, blood-bought bride, for those who would seek to be their own king for those who would rob God of his glory, for those who would call good evil and evil good, for rebels against the king of heaven and earth, the battle is over before it begins. Rebellion against the king of the universe is futile, no matter the scale. From the systematic, intentional persecution of God's people to my individual rebellious acts against God's law. The king and his justice are immutable and absolute. And for those who know and are known by the king, his justice is safe. Because the king and his justice are good. Let's look at the justice of the king's judgment. It's time for the king and judge to be revealed. Verse 11 Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Here we have this, this bright white throne. This this the brightness and the whiteness of the throne represents purity, spotlessness, perfection. White also means victorious. Remember verse nineteen, our chapter nineteen, in the rider on the white horse, the victorious warrior. And it's interesting, like the earth and the sky are personified here, and it says that the earth and the sky fled. They left, they left the building, right? To make room for something better. They fled away because they cannot stand in his presence. There's no place for them. Something is going to replace them. The old broken creation is undone in an instant. The curse The curse of the fall is being unmade, is being rolled back. The king is making all things new. 12 and 13. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in them, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they would judge, each one of them, according to what they had done. Judgment Day, right? The title of so many movies uh, involving uh, a race of sentient robots, an asteroid, or Vin Diesel, um, and probably the Venn diagram on those elements is pretty interesting. But this is the real Judgment Day. The real Judgment Day that we, we that captures our imagination so much this is it, for real. And, and on this Judgment Day, there are two books. One is the record of all the deeds done by every human being to ever live on the face of the earth. And then there's the other one. I used to have nightmares. Probably will still have nightmares about this Judgment Day that it played out like this, right? That that everybody who ever lived was standing in this giant movie theater, and on the screen, when it came my turn, was everything I ever did in my entire life, with special attention given to all of those things that I never wanted anybody to find out about. Not ever, not in any sense of the word ever, no. And it played out on the screen for every human soul that ever existed to see and mock and the shame and the guilt. That that was my worst nightmare. But it says, and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done. I think that is the most terrifying verse in the entire Bible. Does it seem just to you? I mean, if if the Bible is right, and God is who he says he is, doesn't it seem right that we would be judged according to our deeds, right? That if we are, in fact, the cosmic rebels the Bible says we are, then where is the hope? There's hope. Because there's another book verse 15 and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire let's pause over verse 15 so we don't we don't miss the grace because what we've established so far from this is that we are all Cosmic rebels that are left to ourselves and our own devices that we are going to do according to what we think is right and according to our own law, that we naturally, as fallen human beings, set ourselves up to be the king. That we are cosmic rebels against the true king. Romans 3 says this No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. In verse 23 of Romans 3 it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we all deserve to stand before the pure and perfect judge and his great white throne of victory and be judged according to our deeds. That is what we deserve. And if that is what happens, we will be condemned. But, there's the other book, the book of life. I want you to know that the book of life in Revelation 20, that's the short version of the title of this book. This book has a longer title that is very important for us to to know. And that, that title is found in Revelation 13, verse 8, and it says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So the full title of the book of life is the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The Lamb who was slain is found in Revelation 20, verse 11. He's sitting on the throne. The judge is the Lamb. The book of life belongs to him. Because the death that inscribed the names of the people in the book was his death. The blood that bought the church to be his bride was his blood. That every human being that has ever lived and ever will live will one day stand before the throne upon which is seated the lamb who was slain. Do you want to be judged by your deeds or by his deeds? For unrepentant rebels against the lamb, your judgment day is still in the future. the people of God. For those who cry out to Jesus Christ in faith for mercy and for grace, your judgment day is behind you. It was on the cross. As God's just wrath for your deeds that were written in the first book were poured out on the Lamb who was slain and who now sits on the throne judging the entire world. For God's people, we need not fear judgment day because Christ has been judged and punished for His people on the cross. Our judgment day is over. Receive it by grace. It is given to you that this great King and Judge became the Lamb that was slain for you. Cry out to Him. Cry out to Jesus. His grace is enough to save you from your own deeds, your own rebellion. Whether you have been a Christian for many years or even today seeking the Lord, confess your need to Him. Cry out to Him. He is in the business Of making all things new. That includes your heart. There's a beautiful eternity. Awaiting those whose names. Are written in the book of life. Of the lamb that was slain. His heart. Is for broken sinners. And this morning. We have the privilege of coming before him. As he has set this table. For his people with his own broken body. And shed blood. And we saw in the sacrament of baptism, a sign and a seal pointing to the cleansing blood of the Lamb that was slain and His covenant promises to His people. Well, now we see the fulfillment of those covenant promises before us in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as the great white throne upon whom sits the Judge is once again shown to be the Lamb who gave His body and His blood for His people. Even as we celebrate that that this morning, let's celebrate recognizing and realizing and worshiping this God who loves us and gives Himself up for us. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, how thankful we are for the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You that... That you are indeed just. But in the cross, your justice and love meet. And your mercy comes to us through your son's atoning death on the cross. That his, his perfect life lived for us. And his, his atoning death died in our place. And become ours by grace through faith. I pray, Lord, that you would drive that truth. Penetrate our hearts with it. Help us to know it to be true right down to our toes, Lord, even as we come this morning to this sacrament. We pray that you would be glorified in it. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.